Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Gene Bauer, co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary, with the chief location in Watkins Glen, New York, and a second location in Acton, California. Farm Sanctuary might be considered the granddaddy of farmed animal sanctuaries and certainly an exemplar of such facilities. Bauer helped launch Farm Sanctuary in 1986, the first farmed animal sanctuary in the U.S., making him a pioneer in rescuing such animals. We may discuss a discarded sheep named Hilda. Raising awareness of the horrors of factory farming and advocating for the benefits of plant-based eating. Bauer has spoken eloquently on these and other issues for decades in media interviews, lectures, and panel discussions at conferences and podcasts and other settings. Bauer has also articulated a wealth of overlapping information as an author with his books including Farm Sanctuary, Changing Hearts and Minds About Animals and Food, and Living the Farm Sanctuary Life, The Ultimate Guide to Eating Mindfully, Living Longer, and Feeling Better Every Day. In this conversation with Bauer, I hope to discuss the evolution of Farm Sanctuary nearly four decades in, the way the landscape has shifted in the launching of numerous farmed animal sanctuaries across the country as just one measure of his uh, and farm sanctuaries' influence, the related national shift, and again, Bauer's influence here, and eating mindfully, and so on. We'll hear about these and perhaps other topics when I speak with Gene Bauer in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Emily Campbell, a park ranger at Hillsborough River State Park. Our program called Featured Creatures will be offered this Saturday, July 22nd from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Rangers and volunteers present information on the lives of parks, resident animals. This Saturday's edition of Featured Creatures will focus on the wild hog and other non-native invasive species found at Hillsborough River State Park. We'll learn more about this from Emily later in today's show. On a somewhat related note, Florida's state park system is holding a photo contest. Submissions must be received by July 30th. You can just search for Florida State Parks Photo Contest, and you'll find a website with details and submission information right there. So, right now, though, let's get to the original Farm Sanctuary, really, with Gene Bauer, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Gene Bauer on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Gene. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask, though, did you go for a run today? I did not go for a run today. It's a little early, but I've actually been taking long walks, which are a little less pounding on the joints. Oh, did so you start to feel the, the effects of the running over the years? I am. Well, I actually also have torn meniscus in both my knees, and I think I actually did that when I was doing yoga and overdoing it with the pigeon pose. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I could get operations on the knees and trim, you know, the outside of the cartilage, but I haven't done that. And uh, so I'm, I'm at a point now where, you know, I might get back to running at some point. I can run a little bit here and there. 
Yeah. But I'm mainly doing long walks, which I really enjoy. And it sounds like it's easier on the, uh, the, the painful part of the knees and stuff that are giving you some trouble. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember you've been an avid runner for many years. Maybe that's part of the price that you paid because I'm 14, 15 years ago, I guess, our, our family was visiting Farm Sanctuary. And I thought, well, I, I got to try to say a quick hello to Gene. At that point, I think I'd already interviewed you at least once on the show. So we went chasing you down because we couldn't find you anywhere, and you were probably just enjoying yourself in the solitude of a run. And there my family was saying, Gene, Gene, we have to say hello to you. And I was like, well, that's not really why I go for a run. I, I go for <laughs> other reasons, but uh, but we did. <laughs> we were happy to see you there, at least. So, uh, yeah, I still love getting out in nature, and you know, I have been a runner for decades. And yeah. it's a great way just to kind of get the body moving, get the blood flowing, and, you know, I, I could see myself returning to running before too long, but for now, long walks are, are, are very, very pleasant and doing the job. Right, and the idea that surgery would be looming first probably is, is kind of a, an important uh, factor to consider, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of surgery generally, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, so... So, so we'll see how it goes, but it's, it's fairly easy to do. Apparently, a lot of people I know have gotten that surgery. It's just trimming, you know, the meniscus is like a cartilage in the knee. Yeah, and um, you know, the outsides of it sometimes get torn, and so that's what 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 I have right now. And uh, you know, it, it hurts when you push it too hard, so that's what's keeping me from running. But the long walks are very easy, no pain at all, and you know, short runs are not a problem either. I got you. All right. Well, it sounds like it's working out for you currently, so that's great. Yes. So uh, in broad strokes, it's been really, I guess, the better part of 40 years since you helped launch Farm Sanctuary. And uh, over that time, there's been a lot of hard work and a lot of challenges and obviously a lot of major triumphs. All these years later, though, you'd be excused if some days felt like same old, same old to you. What kind of circumstance still most invigorates you um, at this point? Yeah, well, there's a lot of circumstances, actually, that still invigorate me. I, I love hearing stories and observing animals who re are rescued and then heal and recover and start to enjoy life. That never gets old. It's about uh, joyfulness and, and well-being and loving life, you know? Yeah. Animals at the sanctuary get a chance to do that. But I also am very much inspired in recent years to see what is happening in communities around the country and around the world where people are taking their health uh, into their own hands and in some cases even growing their own food. It's, uh, it's very empowering. Yeah. It's, uh, I think signs of a more resilient food system. In the United States, there's this sort of burgeoning food, not lawns movement where people are replacing their lawns, which, you know, if you think about it, take a lot of space. In fact, lawn, <clears throat> lawns take up more space in this country, over 30 million acres, than all of the land used to grow fruits and vegetables. So these lawns, in some cases, are now being replaced with gardens or with pollinator habitat. And, and these are ways for people to live more thoughtfully, more conscientiously, with a lighter footprint on the planet. So I'm very inspired to see that, as well as teachers and other people who are working with students to grow food and to create solutions to our, our messed up factory farming food system. Yeah, not to mention that uh, some of the virtues of replacing a lawn is the uh, the water required to keep a lawn going uh, and all it produces is, you know, the lawn. 
Um, it's kind of not really a trade-off compared to if you are planting a garden or growing food there where there was a lawn. That seems like a huge, huge uh, benefit, cost-benefit thing. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the energy as well that, that is required to mow lawn. Uh, so I could envision a time where gardeners, you know, that oftentimes now come to people's homes to mow lawns, actually become gardeners. And instead of mowing lawns and putting down fertilizer, you know, all of that taking energy, uh, just grow produce. And then the homeowner gets a box of produce every year. And then if their neighbor does this and their neighbor does this, we could have, you know, abundance in communities all over the country. Yeah. And I would think that as people sort of just can't help but be struck by all the drastically, in many cases, changing weather patterns that people are probably rethinking what they do at their own house. And hopefully what they often conclude is that maybe it, maybe we should have a, a garden, maybe we should grow some food here and uh, switch things up a little bit. Um, it's so beautiful. I was talking to a friend the other day who talked about how they have a garden in the backyard and in the front yard, they took out their lawn and turned it into pollinator wildlife habitat. And they have a little ecosystem there now. And just observing the wildlife is enjoyable. Um, but in terms of the climate, absolutely, animal agriculture is one of the top contributors to the climate crisis, yeah. as well as the loss of biodiversity because it requires so much land. And people who have homes and have yards have an opportunity to create more global resilience on the earth. And, you know, by growing plant foods and allowing areas to be rewilded, we actually help to sequester carbon and lighten the greenhouse gas load on the uh, atmosphere. So there are things, you know, not one, one garden is not going to change the world completely, but it, it's significant. And if enough people do this, we could have a big impact. Yeah, well, if that one garden begets two and then four and, and then maybe that eight neighborhood and, and then we're friends or relatives of those people follow the suit, pretty soon you have a nice trend going. That's exactly right. And human beings are social animals. We tend to do what those around us do. So one garden, as you say, could beget another garden, which could beget another garden. And, yeah. um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I grew up eating meat like everybody around me, and that wasn't really a conscious choice I made to eat meat, dairy, and eggs. It, it was just something everybody was doing. So I started doing it without thinking. Yeah. And um, I think having positive examples around us of people eating healthy plant foods, of people who are growing produce in their, in their front yard or backyard, instead of having a lawnmower come in, you know, once a week or however often to just mow the grass. Um, you know, each time somebody takes a positive step, it's an example for those around them. And it makes it more likely that other people will also take positive steps. So, you know, one garden, you never know what it's going to lead to. Yeah. Well, also, if there's one less uh, lawn and related things, if that somehow yields one less uh, one of those blowers, that's a big plus right there. I totally agree. Those, those, those blowers drive me nuts, yeah. you know, and they make a lot of noise. And, again, that's fossil fuels being used yeah. uh, for, for very little benefit, it seems to me. In fact, it would be better to leave a lot of the uh, green manure, as it's called, on organic farms like the leaves and the grass to decompose and to create nutrients and fertilize that space. But we take this stuff away. So there's a lot of energy that goes into 
removing nutrients that I think in many cases should just stay there and help to uh, create the next generation of plants to grow in that land. Yeah, when you when you can't help but be uh, struck by the blowers, you're also struck by the fact that they're just blowing whatever that is. And like you say, some of those things could actually be great value if they just were left where they were. But they're just blowing them around. They're not actually taking them up or putting them somewhere. They're just moving them from point A to point B to wherever the blower happens to uh, distribute the stuff. So, it's again, the virtues of that are hard to see, and, and the minuses are plentiful. Yes, couldn't agree more. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Gene Bauer, co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary, which uh, Bauer helped launch in eight, 1986. Farm Sanctuary could be considered the granddaddy of farmed animal sanctuaries and certainly is an exemplar of such facilities. And Bauer is a pivotal pioneer in this realm. If you'd like to ask Gene a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So I just noted, as I kind of briefly in the opening as well, um, over the years an enormous number of farmed animal sanctuaries have popped up across the country. Uh, heck, just here in Florida, it might be difficult to accurately count all the farm sanctuaries currently operating. Do these sanctuaries feel like um, offspring in some way to you or maybe descendants? Yeah, they do in many ways. And it kind of goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about how human beings are social animals. We see other people doing something, and we're inspired to do the same thing. And I think the farm sanctuary movement uh, reflects that, how... People have increasingly learned about the abuses of factory farming, about how cows, pigs, chickens, turkeys, and other animals experience horrible lives on these industrial operations, and more and more people want to do something to make a difference. And in 1986, there were no farm sanctuaries, and you know we were founded that year, and today there are thousands around the world. And yeah. I think that, um, you know, some people saw us and then started their own farm sanctuary. Some people saw other farm sanctuaries and started their own farm sanctuary. But it really speaks to how we are social animals, and we rub off on those around us. We influence those around us. And I think farm sanctuaries can have a very positive influence because they help people to see farm animals as living, feeling creatures who are not that different than cats and dogs, who have feelings, who have memories, who have relationships, and who want to enjoy their lives just like human beings or cats or dogs or any other animal. And and if we can live well with, without causing harm to these other animals, why wouldn't we? And I think more people are starting to ask themselves that question, and also people want to make a difference, and that's part of why the farm sanctuary movement has grown so much. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, gracious of you to say uh, people saw farm sanctuaries and then started their own farm sanctuaries. Uh, but I think most of those farm sanctuaries, you know, you can trace back. There's only so many degrees of separation between whatever farm sanctuary somebody's looking at and your farm sanctuary. So really, directly or at least indirectly, you've certainly uh, spawned uh, the, this movement. So surely that's that's... You recognize your influence in all this, and that's got to be gratifying, I would think. Oh, yes. No, it's it's very gratifying to see sanctuaries all over the world, and I've been able to visit a number here in the United States 
and have been very happy to see the work they're doing and also happy to see animals enjoying good lives and visitors to these sanctuaries getting to know farm animals as friends instead of as just food. And when you look into the eye of a pig or another animal and recognize that there is somebody there, uh, it, it can do something to you. And I think the more people that have that experience, the better. And so I'm very happy to see so many sanctuaries around the country. And uh, as over the years, as these farm sanctuaries have opened in all kinds of places, not just across the con- uh, country, but in other countries as well, how often have people... Um, contact you to sort of get some guidance or advice or grapple with some sort of issue that goes with launching a a farm sanctuary? We are regularly contacted by individuals in the U.S. and around the world interested in starting a sanctuary or grappling with challenges of running a sanctuary. And so we have numerous conversations uh, every day, and that is continuing and uh, we're very happy to be a resource and to be able to share our experiences, share what we've learned, uh, share some of the challenges, and share also some of the opportunities with other sanctuaries. And, you know, one of the key issues that you always rub up against when you are an animal sanctuary is that ultimately, especially when it comes to farm animals, we can't rescue ourselves out of this factory farming problem. There are literally... 10 billion farm animals raised and slaughtered every year in the United States. And so even if we rescued a million animals a year, which is not practical or possible for us, um, it would be a drop in the bucket. So what we ultimately need to do is to go upstream and to prevent the need to rescue billions of animals every year. And, And again, for sanctuaries, it's tough because every single individual who's exploited in the system deserves to be rescued. And so ethically, we, in a sense, have an obligation to do it, but it's impossible. So you do the best you can, you provide as many homes as you can, but I think it's also very important to put energy into educating people and to advocating for reform in the food system. The best way to prevent farm animals from being exploited and slaughtered is to change what people eat. And so if we can start shifting the food system towards more plant-based agriculture and away from animal agriculture, uh, it would be good not only for non-human animals, but also for humans and for the earth. In the United States, 10 times more land is used for animal agriculture than for plant-based agriculture. So changing to plant-based would open up so much more land for wildlife, which is really important, that we're destroying ecosystems, we're destroying rainforests in order to grow food or feed for farm animals. And that is also very inefficient. We're squandering scarce water resources. You know, recently there was uh, news about the Colorado River out west and how western states are vying for the right to have this Colorado River water. And the Colorado River doesn't even even reach the ocean anymore. Yeah. But one of the things that was not adequately elevated as part of that conversation is the fact that most of that water is being used for animal agriculture to irrigate crops that are fed to farm animals. And so if we stopped eating farm animals, there would be much more water available for other, I would argue, more viable and more sensible uses. 
For sure. And do you feel, uh, I mean, it's a tough numbers game, as you kind of outlined there, with the millions and millions of of animals that are slaughtered from, within factory farming, animal agriculture, uh, relative to what you and all the other farm animal sanctuaries can save. But do you feel, uh, in terms of some of the, the shifts maybe in the food consumption, uh, encouraged with where, where people seem to be moving, or at least some people seem to be moving? Yes, I am encouraged uh, to see a growing awareness about factory farming and a growing interest in plant-based food, I'm very happy to see businesses actually being developed in entrepreneurs and innovators coming up with alternatives to animal products and, and, and that will help prevent the suffering and the slaughter of these other animals. So there's a lot of energy in this space right now, which is very good. Um, and unfortunately, though, we're up against uh, an agricultural system that's heavily subsidized by the government. Yeah. Uh, that spends literally billions of dollars every year to enable our factory farming system. And, you know, one of the biggest, um, most entrenched interests in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals is the dairy industry. And there was a study done a few years ago looking at dairy industry income, and they found that over 70% of dairy industry income came from government programs. Mm. So that is terribly inefficient, and unfortunately, uh, that has perpetuated this cruel system that is not only bad for animals, but also very difficult for small dairy farmers who are having a hard time staying in business, and they're just holding on, and they're getting government money to continue raising cows and and milking them. Um, And instead, I think that government money should be used to help these farmers transition into growing fruits and vegetables, and other foods that we need more of in this country. In the U.S., we produce way too much cow's milk. We have a glut of cow's milk, um, and we have a lack of access to fruits, vegetables, and healthy plant foods. So government programs should be more rational and should incentivize farmers to grow the foods we need more of. Uh, But we're up against entrenched interests right now who, who are very powerful, Uh, And it's not only the farming industry, they're linked to the banking industry, they're linked to the pharmaceutical industry, they're linked to petrochemical industry. So we're up against a huge machine, uh, and that's why change happens so slowly, and that's why animal foods are much cheaper than they really should be uh, when we go to the grocery store. Um, But consumers are increasingly becoming aware and making more mindful choices that are better aligned with with people's interests and their values. So I think people are starting to get it. We now need to work on policies that incentivize healthier foods instead of the ones that have been incentivizing factory farming for decades. For sure. And again, like you say, there's so much uh, power in so many key corridors and so much money. So, for example, back to something you mentioned a a moment ago, uh, that's why... When you're talking about uh, the troubles with the Colorado River, you don't hear about the role that uh, factory farming or other offshoots of that have played in that because um, somebody, you know, probably helped ensure that that wasn't part of the story. That's very true. I mean, there have been times when I've debated industry people and the media networks who have hosted these debates have gotten letters and calls from lawyers from the industry to try to squash discussion. And 
you know, when Oprah Winfrey had a conversation about mad cow disease and some of the irresponsible practices of the beef industry, uh, she got sued by beef producers yeah. and ended up having to go to court and defend herself. So the industry is, and, and the industry is also passing these ag gag laws to make it illegal to investigate factory farms and to discuss what is happening. So this is an, an industry that has a lot to hide, and, and they've invested heavily in the media as well. And they do tons of advertising, and they've crafted narratives um, that many people in the media and the mainstream actually believe. You know, the idea that we need cow's milk for calcium, for example, is one of these false narratives that we need to uh, challenge. And, you know, if you look at our country, we drink a lot of cow's milk, so theoretically we should be getting a lot of calcium, and so we should theoretically not have osteoporosis. But despite the fact we drink a lot of cow's milk in this country, we also have a lot of osteoporosis. So if you start looking at the empirical evidence, uh, it's pretty clear that we need to change how we eat if we care about our health, if we care about the suffering of other animals, if we care about the health of the planet. Um, but there are narratives that are just inaccurate that are perpetrated con continuously through agribusiness, PR firms, through the media. Uh, another of these myths is that factory farming is efficient. In fact, factory farming is terribly inefficient. And again, like I mentioned before, it depends on government subsidies to be profitable. So that's another of these myths we need to challenge and recognize that we can feed ourselves much more efficiently uh, in a healthier way by eating plants instead of animals and by encouraging a plant-based food system. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, so discouraging because you make some inroads uh, educationally uh, in terms of books like yours and others, uh, uh, legislation makes some inroads here and there. And just as that's starting to happen, then in recent years, these ag-gag laws that you just referred to kick in and sort of reverse course for a lot of the progress that was being made. And, uh, and not surprisingly, they, they, they were starting to, to be concerned that, you know, the jig might be up or at least exposed. But um, it's hard to it's hard to kind of keep fighting when they've got so many resources and just like again when there's some progress being made, something new is introduced by them to to forestall that or, or even try to reverse that. No, it's it's very true. They continue fighting, um, you know. But I'm reminded of that old Pete Seeger album and song, "God Bless the Grass That Grows Through Cracks in the Cement," and you know the grass is alive and it keeps. I mean, he's seeking the sun, and over time, it does break down the cement. And I think that agribusiness is very entrenched, um, and it wants to hold on to the current system because it profits from it. Yeah. But that system is harmful to most people, and as people learn about it, they want something different. And so these ag-gag laws um, have been challenged in court, and we've had some successes where they've been declared unconstitutional violations of free speech. Now, that's an ongoing battle, uh, but it's one where we've had some victories. Uh, another significant victory that occurred recently is that um, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a California law to ban some of the worst cruelties. Now, now, this law that passed in California by an initiative, which is a popular vote, uh, and that's how we've been able to succeed through popular votes, when we have legislation introduced, it usually goes through the legislative process to an agriculture committee, 
which is very friendly to agribusiness. And it's been very hard to make progress there. But when we take these issues to the people for a popular vote, we're undefeated in recent years. So um, California passed legislation to ban confining animals in cages and crates that are so small that the animals can't turn around or stretch their limbs or walk or move. And we won through the initiative process where over 60% of California voters voted to ban those cruel systems. But the industry didn't like it, so they went to court. And they've been in court for years, losing one case after another case, appealing, appealing, and appealing. And eventually, the U.S. Supreme Court actually took this up. And earlier this year, the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favor of animals and the popular vote, saying that the California law can stand. So we make progress, and the industry continues to try to prevent it. Uh, but we just keep hammering away, and bit by bit, I think we'll start cracking the, the chip, chipping at that cement, and the grass will continue to grow. Yeah, the awareness will grow, and change will happen. Yeah, no, that that has to be what happens, and that has to be in, in the meantime before the next breakthrough, the next chip. That has to be the belief that that will happen, so that people just keep working. Exactly, exactly. So the way I sort of stay active and uh, engaged in this process is I try to focus on the positive things. I try to focus on what we're able to achieve. Um, I also want to be realistic and don't want to be too Pollyanna-ish about, you know, victories and success. But I really do believe that awareness is increasing. Uh, I see enormous interest in including investments in alternatives to factory farming foods. Um, but we're up against the big machine that's been entrenched for decades. And uh, But I do hold on to the small victories. And I also believe that small victories rub off and grow into bigger victories. And small changes over time can become big changes. So, you know, I, I have hope, I have optimism, and that's what keeps me going in this work. Yeah. Um, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Gene Bauer, co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary, which Bauer helped launch in 1986. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. So people who know of Farm Sanctuary but don't maybe pay uh, close attention day to day may not be aware that your rescue efforts are ongoing and and active to to this day. Um, can you describe some recent farm sanctuary rescues that stand out to you for one reason or another? Well, we bring in animals from all sorts of different circumstances, and you know some come from factory farms. Some actually come from individuals who have rescued animals and then are unable to care for them anymore. And so we play a role in networking and bringing these animals to other sanctuaries. So we've done more of that in recent years where we're helping to place animals who need safe homes. Uh, but, you know, of course, I, I have most deep experience with the individuals who I was involved in rescuing. Yeah. And, you know, there's Hilda, who you referred to in the introduction, yeah. who kind of started the whole thing. And... So back in the 1980s, when Farm Sanctuary first started, we felt it was important to see firsthand what was happening on, in stockyards, at farms, at slaughterhouses. So we investigated these places and 
documented conditions. And we were at a stockyard in Pennsylvania, and we came to the, the dead pile, which is what it sounds like. It's a pile of dead animals behind the stockyard uh, because they die in transit regularly. But we saw dead sheep, dead cows, dead pigs all piled up there. And one of the sheep in the pile lifted her head, and she was still alive. So we removed her, took her to a veterinarian, thinking she would have to be euthanized. But she actually started to perk up, and then she stood up, and she lived with us for more than 10 years. So that was Hilda, our first rescue animal. And since Hilda, you know, thousands have come through our doors, and tens of thousands, if not more, have gone through the doors of other sanctuaries. So um, that rescue, though, really speaks to how brutal this industry is and how important it is for sanctuaries to be there to, to make a difference for individuals, but also symbolically to reflect and, and ask ourselves, who are we as human beings to mistreat these other animals in this way? And I think people, when they compare what happens to animals at a slaughterhouse, for example, and compare that to what happens to animals at a sanctuary, would much rather be in the sanctuary setting. Um, you know, could you imagine what it would be like to work at a slaughterhouse where your job for eight hours a day is cutting the throats of animals? That is horrible for the animals, but it's also really bad for people. And so the factory farming industry uh, undermines our empathy. And, and the farm sanctuaries stand as an antidote to that, stand as a counter to that, stand as, as an example of how we can live with these other animals in a positive way instead of mistreating them and abusing them, which doesn't only harm the other animals, but it harms us. Yeah. Well, on that kind of note, uh, in terms of the empathy and the importance of that, I mean, as a young man, you seem to have uh, an unusual, maybe even precocious sort of um, moral compass, let's say, guiding you towards the right thing to do, the kind thing to do. And arguably that's helped guide you and, and Farm Sanctuary for the ensuing years. Um, so that's really kind of amounts to an ongoing singular uh, vision, really. And looking back, wh- where did that come from? Because, again, you were, you know, you were a young man when all this began and, and you know, Hilda was first saved by you and, and all these things were just beginning. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, for me as a kid, you know, like most kids, they're sort of curious, they're interested in the world around them. And, you know, I was born in 1962, so, you know, the Vietnam War was on television, the, the Cold War was all around us, and I, I grew up in the Hollywood Hills, and there were wild animals. There were coyotes and skunks and raccoons and deer, and there were beautiful oak trees. And so one of the first memories I have is of a deer who was got caught in a neighbor's fence and had to be killed, and it just felt really bad. And then I remember also this beautiful oak tree that was cut down so a house could be made bigger, and that also just viscerally bothered me. And so I, I just thought the harm humans were causing to other animals and to nature and to ourselves through wars and things. And I felt I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't want to be a cog in a wheel of a system causing so much harm. So in high school, I started volunteering at a children's hospital with with terminally ill kids. Um, I started learning about environmental issues in high school. 
uh, volunteering with human rights organizations, uh, and learning more about all the different issues around us. And factory farming is something that not very many people were thinking about in the 1980s. And so I felt that was an area that was really important. And when Farm Sanctuary started back in 1986, our thinking was we could just go in, document what is happening, educate people, and consumers would, you know, want to support something different. It would all go vegan. You know, it was a pretty simple thinking. Yeah. Um, and we didn't have a long-term plan either. It was just, you know, each day we did what we felt made sense. And, and that continues today to some extent with more sort of business planning and all that. But um, it was really just following this instinct of trying to do something positive in the world and, and wanting not to be part of a system that was so harmful. That's how it started for me. Yeah. But it all, I can't help but wondering, especially as you describe more about some of the things you were doing back then, well, again, while you were in high school. So that's, this goes kind of underscores my thought about sort of being precocious in this regard. But was there a spiritual bent to it? I mean, one trait that's kind of characterized you and, and Farm Sanctuary Course as a result is really not being judgmental of individuals or organizations, whether that's maybe a, only, say, a partial embrace of plant-based eating or a policy that may not be, um, you know, as, as strong or, or precise as it could be. And, uh, you know, so many issues in animal welfare can be polarizing and contentious, but not your way. Your way is like, hey, that's progress. That's great the way you're eating now. Maybe the next step will be this or that policy. Sure, maybe could use a little refining, but I think we, we applaud and support it in the meantime. I mean, that just seems to be your way. Yeah, no, I think that since the beginning, that's been how Farm Sanctuary has approached this, is that we speak to people where they are on their own journeys, which which also requires empathy towards people, right? Yeah. Who may have certain challenges that we may not be aware of, and a humility, which I think is also important. And so in terms of spiritual practice, I think I've thought a lot about that over decades, and, you know, I think that the best approach is to be about inclusion and empathy and helping to empower people. Uh, also recognizing that people are fallible. We make mistakes. Um, and so there's that saying, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Mm -hmm. And I really try to embrace that. And I think when religion or when activists can be too judgmental uh, and too strident and too righteous, it can put up walls. So, and it, and it prevents us from actually understanding where there may be opportunities to find common ground. And when we can find common ground, we can start building from there. And, and that, for me, is really important. And it requires a real empathy to try to understand where somebody is coming from and to try to understand what is relevant and what is important to them and why they might feel the way they do. And it can be tough because, you know, we often deal with individuals who are really hard to deal with. And you know, but there's also that saying, hurt people, hurt people. So oftentimes those who are the most challenging to speak with or to have conversations with are some of those who are most in need of those kinds of conversations. It's just a matter of how do you have those conversations, and that's not easy to figure out sometimes. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when you talk about hurt people, uh, hurt people, that reminded me of something else that I was really struck by, and we're sort of unfortunately nearing the end of our time, Gene, but uh, in our remaining time I want to – at least address this and maybe one or two other quick things. But um, a lot of folks may be unaware there's a whole kind of research bent to 
Farm Sanctuary. And one area of research that strikes me as particularly fascinating, which the hurt people, hurt people thing reminded me of, is this exploration of PTSD in rescued farmed animals. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? In fact, I think there's a, a seminar coming up online shortly, too, that people can check out. But it just seems like a really fascinating area to explore. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we live with these other animals who have been through the abuses of factory farming, and we want to be able to tell their stories, elevate their stories. And that requires that we, we understand these animals and we pay attention and try to frame these issues in ways that people can understand. And, you know, PTSD is something that, you know, people experience, you know, veterans of war or people who've been through traumatic experiences have these lasting, lingering impacts of those experiences. And we believe that animals who've been abused in the factory farming industry also have these lingering effects of that trauma. And so we are, we have a, a really innovative research team that is doing some great work to try to understand these other animals and to be able to encourage and help people empathize with them. Uh, and I think when we empathize with others, we don't want to hurt them. So PTSD is one of the topics we're looking at. Yeah, so interesting. Um, I should just quickly note one of our emailers uh, from so the other part of the conversation was saying, why can't we come up with something in vegan food to make people addicted to it, like the, uh, the key ingredient that attracts people to dairy? Um, That's an interesting question. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, when, and I don't know if I'd like the word addicted exactly, right? I wouldn't want to necessarily follow the dairy industry's approach to trying to get people addicted, sort of yeah. like the drug industry might want to get people addicted. But I think we can work to get people inspired. And, you know, when people eat vegan food and then when they feel good, uh, I think that is something we can do. Uh, you know, they can feel healthier, more energetic. Uh, they don't have to be stressed. I think there is a, a subtle stress that people experience when there's this cognitive dissonance about, you know, feeling that they want to be humane, but they're supporting an industry that is very inhumane. So I think we can feel really good and inspired and, and perhaps even become addicted to a vegan lifestyle. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, there are ways that people can experience joy and become increasingly energized and attracted to a vegan lifestyle. Yeah. Okay, so we have maybe just one, literally one minute left. I'm going to ask you this question. You can do whatever you can to try to address it in a minute. But since 1986, as we've noted a few times, you've always been sort of ahead of the curve. What's an issue or topic that's not receiving the attention you think it merits um, at the moment? I think federal and state policies that enable factory farming need to be more openly challenged. And we are working to challenge the farm bill and to shift resources away from factory farming towards community-oriented, healthier plant-based agriculture. So I think that that's the next place, systemic change through policy reform. Okay, perfect. Well, Gene, thank you so much for being with speaking with Gene Bauer, again, the uh Co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary. The website is farmsanctuary.org. Fantastic website, full of all kinds of great information. A lot of the stuff we covered here, a lot of stuff we didn't have a chance to cover, and there were definitely some things I was hoping to get into, but we, I'm glad we covered what we did cover. So, Gene, thank you so much for uh, joining me again on Talking Animals. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Duncan. Always happy to do it. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. 
In a moment, I'll talk with Emily Campbell, park ranger at Hillsborough River State Park, about the Featured Creatures program happening this Saturday, July 22nd, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The focus of this edition will be the wild hog. We'll hear more about Featured Creatures when Emily Campbell joins us in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Right now, though, let's step into the comedy corner with Kevin Nealon and a piece with a peripheral connection to our Farm Sanctuary conversation with Gene Bauer. This is a piece called Cows on the Roof from Kevin Neal in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Most animals are smart, though. You know, I remember during the uh, tsunami in Sri Lanka, I read about this. The animals, they have like a sixth sense. They knew it was coming, and they took off for the hills the day before it happened. They all survived. They didn't tell anybody else. They kept it a secret. They, come on, just us. Come on. Keep it quiet. Move it along. Let's go. But I have a whole newfound respect for animals now. I give them a lot more credit. In fact, now, when I see a dog chasing a car, I will chase that car, too. Oh, yeah. Animals are something. I rescued a couple of cats not long ago. Hey, do your cats throw up all night long? Is that what they do? Is that the M.O.? I mean, all night long, all I heard was, whoa! And I wake up in the morning, and there is puke everywhere. It's like living in a fraternity house or something. You know, it's just crazy. And you know what? Not even puke. They're hairballs. And I know that because I sifted through it with a little stick. A couple of berries, but mostly hair. Mostly hair. Yeah. And you got to get it off the carpet quick. Otherwise, it stains. You've got to make a decision. Either get them off or let them accumulate and become like a sticky shag carpet after a while. Animals are smart. That's all I'm going to say. I watch the Weather Channel. They always show the floods in the Midwest, right? And they show the cow up on the roof, you know, surrounded by water. I don't know how she gets up there. I guess she comes up the stairs, I guess. Do they have stairs in a barn? I don't know. I don't know. She comes up the stairs, crawls out the window, grapples up to the roof, just waits it out. They should show that. They should show that. Maybe they should have the cow network. I'd watch the cow network. But even here in California, you know, the animals warn you before uh, an earthquake. They'll start barking like crazy. The dogs, you know, the cats will hide in their cars. You just have to know the signals, what to look for. Okay, like if you live in the Midwest, right, and you're going down the stairs and there's a cow coming up the other way, you get the boots. You get the boots. It's common sense. Look at the guy in the back. Check him out. That was Kevin Nealon. The piece called Cows on the Roof of today's Comedy Corner taken from his album Now Hear Me Out. Now it's time to speak with Emily Campbell, Park Ranger at Hillsborough River State Park, about the Featured Creatures program happening this Saturday, July 22nd, where the wild hog, among other critters, will be discussed. To fill us in, let's welcome Emily Campbell on Talking Animals. Good morning, Emily. Hey, Doctor. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So, first, maybe you could just describe uh, Hillsborough River State Park. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's one of our beautiful Florida State Parks located in the Tampa area. Uh, we have access to one of two class two rapids in the state of Florida, some beautiful hiking trails, a great place to get out and stretch your legs. Uh, we also have camping and kayaking and picnic areas in the park. That sounds great. Wow. So um, how long have you been a ranger there? Uh, going on about two years now. And is that how long you've been a ranger overall, or were you a ranger elsewhere before? Well, I started down at Ybor City Museum State Park. Okay. It's a museum, and uh, started to cross-train, and now I get to spend part of my time talking to history nerds and part of my time talking to nature nerds, and I've never looked back. 
That's great. <laughs> um, so uh, what do you like most about being a park ranger? Well, I think that comes down to the program. Really, uh, the best part about being a park ranger in general is getting to share the beauty of the cultural and natural resources that we protect here in the state of Florida. Um, getting to share uh, just the amazing and unique ecosystems and the real Florida. <laughs> uh, so the Future Creatures program is wonderful because it allows rangers to pick a topic that they are particularly passionate about and discuss it with our incredible visitors and communicate in a way that shows why we love Florida. Well, that's great. Well, let's talk a little bit more specifically about that since that's kind of our, the ostensible reason for our chat today. So so the next edition of Future Creatures, uh, as we noted, is this Saturday, July 22nd. takes place from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. But how does it actually work? So, um, like, if I wanted to come to the... Uh, the creature featured creatures program what would i do how would i sign up or do i need to sign up or how does it work there is no need to sign up it is an open program so you are still going to have to pay admission to the park just come and visit us over here uh, in the main pavilion area and we'll have activities and interpretive programming to discuss actually the headlight and later beetle so oh wait what happened to the uh the wild hog Oh, we have had a change of curriculum. There are just too many amazing animals to focus on. Oh, my God. I can't keep up. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. I can't blame you for that one. All right. So, so tell me more specifically about that because I didn't even know that was, uh, that was what the focus was going to be this Saturday. Absolutely. So summer's a great time for us to talk about the headlight later. Um, they're pretty active right now, and they are one of the brightest bioluminescent insects that we have here. Uh, you might think of fireflies and you think of those glow-in-the-dark critters, but... The headlight later is pretty special. Uh, it has a whole bunch of different mechanisms to keep prey away and or to attract prey and keep predators away. Bioluminescence is just one of them. So we're going to be talking about how all of those different characteristics make it not just uh, success in nature, but also um, important to the ecosystem in general. So I take it that the the bright light that they emanate. Uh, answers, at least in some way, loosely, both the question about how to attract uh, prey and how to avoid predators. It does. Yep. Uh, same with that clicking noise. They are a click beetle, so they do put out uh, a noise as well for the same purpose. And if you are out for a night hike in your neighborhood and you see what look like glowing green eyes in summer in Florida, there's a very good chance that you have actually just encountered a headlight alater. Wow. So every, uh, how often is Featured Creatures um, presented? Sure. So it is uh, quarterly. We put it on as we are able, try to keep it seasonally appropriate. So we'll be doing a fall program, a winter program, um, and you can follow along on our website as we announce the different critters that we'll be introducing for those. So in one of the subsequent ones, will the uh, the wild hog that got preempted be... Uh be presented after all, or? You know, I am not sure about that one. I can't give a hard answer either way. Okay. The next one that we're looking at uh, might have to do with monarch butter butterflies. Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Adders. Yeah, yeah. That's so. cool. So do, so I take it like whatever uh, ranger is primarily going to present the program gets to select what the, uh, what the, the featured creature will be featured that day? Exactly. So um, the rangers 
here have a, an incredible body of knowledge on their park, and uh, it's just it feels so authentic to be able to share what you love about the place that you work, especially when you get to be out here in the woods like this. Yeah. It really leads to a genuine connection between uh, the rangers and, and our incredible guests. That sounds great. So basically, uh, let's just review the details for people who um, might have come in a bit late and or might be driving around. So I guess this could be found online at, um, uh, through, what, like Eventbrite and or elsewhere if people wanted to get the details if they can't, if they're not in a position to, to jot them down now but they're interested? Absolutely. You should uh, check out the Florida State Parks website, floridastateparks.org. Uh, we do have an events calendar, not just for our park, but for many local parks to keep up with what's going on. Okay, that's great. So just to review one last time, that's this Saturday, July 22nd from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Hillsborough River State Park in the main pavilion area is where the actual uh, presentation is given. And um, so that's, uh, and it's all about the headlight elater. Is that right? Do I have that correct? You got it, Duncan. Okay. All right. I'm still, I'm still throwing from the uh, wild hog thing, but I'll recover. So uh, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for uh, making the time to join us and tell us about that, Emily. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. You too. Coming up on WMNF, we'll be presenting another edition of Background Briefing. After that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth from 1 to 3, followed by Robin and Cassie from 3 to 6 p.m. Then our terrific Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. Meanwhile, on this show is a moment for the main panel uh, tune. I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. Let's name that animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Bye. 